0: All right, Hebrews chapter 7, you're there now, right? You see in the text today this name Melchizedek. He's not likely a Bible figure that we're all excited to know more about, is he? Have you ever thought, oh, I'd see that name Melchizedek, I'd like to know more about him. I never thought that until I started studying Hebrews seriously to teach it to you, and I began to realize that most of us would put much of what's going on in our lives right now as, a, as, as more important than knowing about Melchizedek. <laughs> would you agree with that? You've got things going on in your life. I've got things going on in my life. If we, if we would have had the choice to say, let's know more about Melchizedek or let's deal with the challenges that we're facing, we'd probably tend toward the challenges that we're all facing in our lives. But I love this about God's Word. It makes it very clear that God doesn't think like we do. God thinks differently. His ways are not our ways. His thinking is not our thinking. God sees things very differently than we do. That's why we're talking about this man, Melchizedek. Say his name three times fast, I dare you. Melchizedek is a tough one. But today we come back to this fellow we found last week in the text and we've heard his name already here in Hebrews but we especially started looking at him more closely last week and we come back today because God thinks differently than we do. He wants us to know about Melchizedek. Now as I prepared this week for our time in God's word I was thinking about what this passage teaches us about Jesus Christ, because in fact, the reason God wants us to know all these things about Melchizedek is because he is a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. He, he demonstrates who Jesus is and what Jesus does, what he accomplishes. And so it's important that we know Melchizedek, because in learning about Melchizedek, we learn something very important about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about and preparing this week for our study today and our time in the text together, I was thinking about the truths expressed here in the passage before us. In the course of the week, I came upon this quote from a pastor and author named Ray Ortland, where he talks about a scene from the movie The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. And if you've seen the movie, you'll probably remember this scene. Maybe you'll remember the scene. Says Ray Ortland, As Glowen hesitates to chip in to pay Bard the Boatman, some, something happens. Right in the middle of his tight-fisted objections, all the dwarves fall silent. The clouds have parted, and they finally see their home, the lonely mountain, off in the distance. Glowen immediately softens, takes out his bag of coins, and says, take it. Take all of it, says Ray Ortland. The freeing power of a greater treasure. Beloved, that is what we're going to see about the Lord Jesus Christ in the text of Hebrews this morning. In Hebrews chapter 7, in verses 4 through 10, the greater treasure is Jesus Christ. And oh, the freeing power of a greater treasure. The greater treasure for all of us is Jesus. And once you have him, once you have faith in Jesus Christ. Once your faith is in Him, because you know about His finished work on the cross for your sins, having Jesus as your Savior, everything else is placed into perspective. That's the freeing power of a greater treasure. As we turn to Hebrews 7 this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10, but I'd like to actually back up to the beginning of the chapter and read from verse 1 for the sake of context. So go to verse 1, Hebrews 7, and follow along as I read through verse 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and... Blessed him, And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues, a priest forever. And verse 4 says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, Paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, the writer of Hebrews wants there to be absolutely no doubt in our minds about the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want there to be any doubt in our minds about how much greater Jesus is than all, than everything, than anyone. And he's helping us see that by showing us Melchizedek, showing us that Jesus is greater than all in how Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Now, I noted this last week, that Melchizedek is a type, a type of Christ, a picture of who Christ is. Melchizedek behaves in a way that's similar to Christ's actions seen in the New Testament he he foreshadows Christ Melchizedek is an example he's a a picture of who Christ is and how he is better than all and what we see here in verses 4 through 10 is that the writer is explaining more fully verses 1 through 3 in fact that's why I wanted to start with verses 1 through 3 because we looked at them last week but But what he's doing here in verses 4 through 10 is explaining, giving a a more full explanation of these verses that we looked at last week, where he began showing us how Melchizedek was better than Abraham. And the, the reason he does that is because in turn, that gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is, and that Jesus is better, Jesus is superior to all. Now, we noted last week, among other truths about Christ, that the image of Christ that's painted by the reign and the ministry of Melchizedek shows us clearly that Jesus is our great high priest. We need no other. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the living Lord, Jesus Christ. He alone brings righteousness and peace from within for all who trust in him. And now, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10 is going to make clear and prove for us the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood compared with the Levitical priesthood. And the point of what the writer is arguing is that Melchizedek was greater than the patriarch Abraham. Greater than Abraham. And in this picture, we're going to see the superiority and the the excellency of of Jesus Christ's priesthood as the great high priest. Now, again, I noted it last week that some have thought that Melchizedek, seen first in the Old Testament, was an appearance of Christ. They would say he, he was a theophany. I noted then that I, I do not believe that, that, to be, that that's the case, and I'm far from being alone in that belief that Melchizedek was not a pre incarnate Jesus, nor was he an angel. Commentator Douglas Wilson writes, This enigmatic figure is named in Genesis and then again in the Psalms. The author of Hebrews shows us that the structure of the sacred text itself is a prophetic type. Without father or mother in the text, without birth or death in the text, without genealogy in the text, he provides a great picture of the Son of God. We know that he was not a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ, because he is compared to Christ, verse 3, where it says, resembling the Son of God, and because Jesus Christ became a Melchizedekian priesthood. And I appreciate the note that Douglas Wilson makes, is that some of those things that we look for to mark a person's beginning and end of life are missing, but they're only missing from the text. The Bible doesn't tell us, tell us about them because it's making much of who Christ is in telling us who Melchizedek was. And we see that. We hear that in verse 3, that Melchizedek was a, a priest resembling the Son of God. That's why we can be confident that he wasn't a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it wouldn't say that he actually resembled the Son of God. It would say something like more like he was. Now, and that's important for us to remember as we continue here in chapter 7. The point of this chapter, the point of the whole book of Hebrews, is Jesus. The point of this chapter is not Melchizedek, it's not necessarily how he was superior to Abraham, even though the text tells us about that. The point of that is that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is better. He's better than all. How desperately we need to be convinced of that. You might be tired already of hearing me say that for these six chapters and now the seventh chapter. But I'm not done. There are 13 chapters in Hebrews. And I'm going to say this again and again and again, that Jesus is better. Why do I do that? Because God does that. God's word says this. This whole book of Hebrews is about how much better Jesus is. If God thought we needed this, then who am I to tell you we don't need this? We need to be reminded of this. Why? Because when we leave this place today, we go back into the world in which we live. We go back to the challenges and the problems that we face. And there are many. And yet we need to take with us this wonderful and powerful, courage-giving truth that gives us courage to live in obedience to God's word, that Jesus is better than everything and anything that you can possibly think of and imagine. Bigger than your problems. Bigger than the challenges that you face. Better than anything Satan tells you is better than Jesus. Let's remember this. Melchizedek is like Jesus. He is a picture of Christ Jesus. And there are two ways in particular that I want you to see that that is true in the text before us. First, I want you to note that this is true about Melchizedek, that he's greater than Abraham and thus he is able to bless him. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and he's able to bless him. We begin to see this in verses 4 through 6. It's it's there that we see that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Look at verse 4 again. See how great. How could you miss it, right? See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Why does he do that? He does it because he understands that being priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek is greater than himself. And when we see here that he gave a tenth of the spoils, it literally meant the top of the heap. In those days, the spoils of battle would be heaped up. And the top tenth, the top of the heap, The best of the best. The best of the spoils would be given as a tithe. And that is what Abraham does when he encounters Melchizedek. He gives the top of the heap, the best of the spoils, the best of the best, as a tithe to Melchizedek. And note what verses 5 and 6 tell us. And those descendants of Levi... "...who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." So what we're seeing here is that Abraham's giving of tithes to Melchizedek shows that he is greater than Abraham. Now one might have thought as they read this letter, the original recipients of this letter, as they read this, they might have thought that Abraham was greater than Melchizedek. I mean, he received the promises from God. God blessed Abraham. They might have thought that Abraham was greater than Melchizedek, but what we're seeing here says otherwise. One commentator writes this, as the author of Hebrews points out, the Genesis passage has Abraham, the father of those who became the Levites, giving a tithe to the priest Melchizedek, who obviously was not of the tribe of Levi. The father Abraham and the Levites in his body gave a tithe to this priest, shows that this happened, shows his deference to him and respect for his unique service on behalf of God Most High. And he goes on to say, Melchizedek's superiority to the Levites primarily rests on his having received a tenth of the spoils from Abraham and the fact that Scripture gives no indication of his death. Again, it's not that he didn't die. It's just that it's not in the text. Verses 9 and 10 go even further. Skip down to verses 9 and 10 and look at them again. Verse 9 says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, Through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So I suggest it's clear that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And that's emphasized here, in that it's as if Levi, not yet born, but a future descendant of Abraham, was himself paying tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham's tithes giving, through his actions. And I don't want you to miss this line from verse 6, which says that Melchizedek, look at verse 6 again, it says that Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. So Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek, showing, as he did, how he understood Melchizedek's superiority. And Melchizedek received the tithe and then in turn blessed Abraham. And that little phrase in verse 6, that he blessed him who had the promises, is significant. Homer Kent writes, all this in spite of the fact that this was the same Abraham who was the patriarch of the Hebrew people and the recipient of the remarkable promises of God, the greatness of Melchizedek was thus recognized and experienced by Abraham, whose acceptance of his priestly blessing testifies to his superiority. And in this consider this since Melchizedek's ministry is an example of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ this shows us how Jesus is superior how he is better than all and how he the Lord Jesus Christ is able to bless now how does Jesus bless because again this is about Jesus Christ. It's it's about exploring and showing and painting a beautiful picture of how Jesus acts and how he works. How does the Lord Jesus Christ bless? Well, there are many ways, and I could probably preach a whole series of sermons on how Jesus blesses, but let's just start with this. How about the forgiveness of sins? That's pretty good, isn't it? How about the forgiveness of sins? That alone makes Jesus better. There are many ways that Jesus blesses. But Jesus Christ, God Himself, God in human flesh, blesses by being the sacrifice for our sins. And he is able to save. And he blesses in that way because he not only died but was buried and then rose from the dead and conquered the grave, he can now conquer sin. And he forgives sin. And he blesses incredibly in that way. Let that blessing... Let me encourage you today to let that blessing be something that you thank God for daily. When was the last time you thanked God for forgiving your sins? Sometimes as believers, sometimes if we've been believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time, we get used to that idea. We ought never get over being overwhelmed by God's grace in how Jesus blesses in forgiving our sins. Jesus, God incarnate, God in human flesh, who once died, now lives eternally, and is now able to bless, especially through the forgiveness of sins. And he is able to bless as one who is now interceding on our behalf. On behalf of all who trust in him. And that makes him worthy of our worship. As we sang this morning about how worthy he is of our worship, the fact that he blesses makes him worthy of our worship. We see that too in Melchizedek. Note this, here's the second thing I want you to pay attention to. Melchizedek demonstrates how Jesus, as the one who gives the blessing, is worthy of our worship. Go back to verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. It is beyond dispute, says verse 7. That's like saying, this is obvious. This is how things work. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham gave the tithes, to Melchizedek, and the superior Melchizedek as seen in the fact that the word of God is silent on his death. And again, that points to someone else, doesn't it? Who is it that lives on? Jesus does. He lives. This Melchizedek, the superior Melchizedek, as seen in the fact that the word of God is silent on his death, gave the blessing to Abraham. The inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek points us to the living, eternal, able to save, able to bless Jesus Christ. And the lesson for us is that when we worship, who are we worshiping? We, worship, we say we worship God. We're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, are we not? The lesson for us is that when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we're recognizing that He's better, that He is superior. That's what all of our worship should be a recognition that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, worthy of our submission, worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith. That's what all of our worship should be, is a recognition. Every time we open our mouths to sing songs of praise, should be a recognition from the bottom of our hearts that Jesus is superior to all. Our singing, our time together in the Word of God. You realize that this too, this opening of the text of Scriptures and saying, This is what God says. This too is an act of worship. This too should be an act of us submitting to God and saying, I recognize who Jesus is as superior, as better than all. Our singing, our time together in the Word, even our giving should be a recognition that Jesus is better than all, that he is worthy of our worship, that he is worthy of us giving our whole lives to. Now, I think the mention of tithes here is a powerful example of this. This is a reminder. We see the mention of tithes here several times. Did you think I wasn't going to stop and say something about this here? I think it's a powerful example of this idea that our worship is a recognition of who Jesus is and that he is better than all. And I think the mention of tithes here is a powerful example of this. This is a reminder of how our giving reflects our priorities and is a recognition of who Jesus is as better than all. Understand this. We don't give. We don't tithe because God needs what we give. Do you realize that? We don't give because God is in desperate need of what we're keeping if we don't give it. We don't give because God is somehow short-changed this Sunday. As if God needs our help to accomplish what He intends to do with us as a church. We give. We tithe. Because we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior. That He is better than all. Our giving A portion of all that we have is evidence that we recognize that truth, that Jesus is worthy of our worship. In fact, everything we have is God's. The things that we have, we call them our possessions, right? You know, sometimes they really possess us, don't they? Some of us have garages filled with things that possess us, and we're just trying to keep them running. (laughs) Oh boy. Don't get me started, right? We give. We tithe. Because everything that we have is God's. You may have never thought about that. But God's word is clear. We are caretakers. We are to be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to our care. Everything we have is God's. Our giving a tithe is not giving God His part. This will change your giving. This will change how you think about giving. If you start thinking this way, if you've never thought this way before, your giving of a tithe, your giving of an offering is not giving God His part so that I can keep my part. Our giving a tithe is not giving God God his part. It's, It's giving a part back of what's his. It's giving a part of what is already his. In recognition that we and all we have is his and he deserves our worship. You see, our giving is an act of recognizing that what I have is God's. And yes, he intends for me to provide for my family with these things, but I'm going to give the top of the heap. I'm going to give a part of what he has blessed me with to use for his glory back to him because I recognize that he is worthy of my worship. But I want you to think about this. When we fail to give... When we fail to give, we're also failing to honor Jesus as superior to and better than anyone and anything. We are also failing to honor Jesus as superior to all. All of our needs, all of our worries and concerns. Often the reason we don't give is because we have other concerns that weigh heavy on our hearts and we think, I couldn't possibly afford to give. When we fail to give because we think that we can't afford it or because we think that all we have is ours, this is mine, this is my possession, I've earned this, that is an admission that we don't really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is greater and better than all. We need to be certain that we're giving for the right reasons. We need to be certain that we're giving because we want to honor God. That we're giving because Jesus is worthy of our worship. I'm giving not because God needs this, I'm giving because Jesus is worthy of my worship. But if we're resisting that idea of giving to God from the top of what we have, from the first fruits of what we have, then that may be telling us something about whether we truly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is better than all. That he is able to bless and worthy of our worship. Jesus is the greatest treasure. He's not a better treasure. He's the greatest treasure. And there is a freeing power in knowing him as your Savior.